Our first scripture reading is from Psalm 12. Psalm 12. Read the whole psalm. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us? Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord, I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Thou, O Lord, wilt, will, O Lord, will keep them. Thou wilt preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. You certainly have in that uh, psalm such a, a contrast between black and white, darkness and light. You have the purity of God's word like uh, silver refined multiple times, contrasted with the, the vileness strutting about and exalted on every side. It's such a strong uh, contrast, but it's especially that point about the purity of God's words, plural, so it's not just the word in some general sense, the Bible in some general sense. It's the very individual words themselves. Everything in God's word is pure. If you turn then please to Acts chapter 24... I'll read verses 10 through to 21. The text for the sermon is verses 14 to 16. And then I'll read from the Westminster Confession, 14, chapter 14, article 2. Acts 24, starting from verse 10. This is uh, Paul before Governor Felix. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defence. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. Now our text but this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. 
Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were certain Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation if they should have anything against me, or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. And then you should find a copy in your bulletin of the Westminster chapter 14, article 2 in this chapter on faith, saving faith. Article 2. By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein and acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you use your word to remind us again of our foundations? how your word itself is our firm foundation since that word tells of and is from and about the Lord Jesus Christ who himself is our rock, the solid foundation on whom we are to build our, our whole lives. We pray it in his name. Amen. Covenant people of God, we um, instinctively tend to react against anyone who speaks and says or even acts like they know it all. They know everything. Uh, when I was in uh, school, there was a little saying, if you had uh, any person, any of the people in the school, the young people who acted like uh, they knew better than everybody else, the others would start to chant, know it all, nothing, and uh, that could uh, itself be quite annoying, I suppose, but uh, that's what they did in those times. So how do we respond to the claim from a Christian if we would have a Christian speak or act as if he knows everything there is to know about the Word of God, that he has all the answers out of the Bible? Would we regard such a person as a know-it-all nothing? But then doesn't the Westminster in chapter 14, article 2, imply that a Christian can and should know and believe whatsoever is revealed in God's word? And if you compare that with Lord's Day 7 in the Heidelberg Catechism, question answer 21 and 22, especially 22, we are told there that a Christian must believe everything God promises in the gospel. 
And these sound like very big claims. And what about the Apostle Paul with his claim? Where he says that he served God believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. Verse 14. So how are we going to regard that? Well, we look at it under three points. First of all, everything versus some parts. Secondly, everything in the gospel. And thirdly, everything with a blameless conscience. Everything versus some parts, everything in the gospel, and everything with a blameless conscience. In the first place, uh, as I say, this claim to believe everything at first sight looks like a rather arrogant claim. To believe everything, you would need to know everything in the Bible exhaustively and comprehensively. And likewise, if, any, if the Apostle Paul or any other mere human being were capable of such, if any of us were capable of knowing absolutely everything in the Bible, then that might imply that the Bible's wisdom was not, after all, so deep, but had a rather limited scope, so that a man could master it in much the same way as the children in, in school, assuming that they uh, still teach such things that children in school might learn, uh, say, their times tables. And they are capable, and some do learn their times tables uh, very, very comprehensively. So is the Bible really not in the same category as that, that if you just put the effort into it, it's possible to do that? Is it that easy that we can take the Bible and learn it in that way, much as children learning their times tables? But no, I think we, we, know from, we know this from our own experience, what Psalm 139 verse 6 and verses 17 and 18 teaches, that such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. But if we cannot attain to it, can we claim that we have faith? Keeping in mind what's said here in the Westminster Confession in this article, by faith... A Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word. So if we don't know and we don't believe absolutely everything, how can we claim that we have that true faith? Because that's the nature of it, that it enables us to lay hold of whatsoever. Well, in answer to that, I would suggest that we consider what the confession and also what the apostle in chapter 24, verse 14 what they're actually contrasting here is the contrast between 100% knowledge of God's word over against incomplete knowledge or a certain level of ignorance. And if that's the conscience, then we're in trouble because none of us have 100%, none of us has 100% knowledge of the Bible. If that's not the contrast, then what is the contrast? Well, I'd suggest to you that what is in view here in this passage and in the confession, it's not a contrast between whether you know absolutely everything in the Bible or only the part that you've been able to grapple with. Rather, the contrast here is between saying on the one hand that the Bible is wholly God's word and therefore it is completely true in everything it says, a contrast between that and the idea that the Bible is a mixture a mixture of things that God says and things that man says. 
a mixture of things that are true and things that are false. To illustrate the, the difference here, uh, and I put something in the outline for the young people to give an illustration of that with respect to parents or teachers. We could say the same thing about preaching in our churches and we could illustrate it this way. If you hear a sermon that you did not fully understand, there's a difference between saying, I'm not questioning the truth of what was preached, but I couldn't fully grasp all of it. A difference between saying that and saying, well, part of what was preached I agree with, but the rest was rubbish. I trust you can see the difference between those two approaches. Now, of course, preachers may err, but God's word does not. We read, and we read it in Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. And we can think of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God. So the question is not whether you have understood every word in the Bible or whether you remember every word in the Bible, but whether you believe that the Bible is God's word in its entirety. And therefore every word is pure and inspired and true or whether you do not believe that. Because if you do not believe that, then the implication is that you either believe that God is a liar in what he writes, or that he is capable of being mistaken in what he writes, or that he is not powerful enough to guard his scripture in order to keep errors out of it. And make no mistake about it, there are many, and some of them are found at times within Reformed churches, there are many around the world who claim to be Christians, who say that the Bible is a mixture of God's word and man's word. And I personally have come across some very uh, striking instances of that in Reformed churches in different places. I found it especially common in the creation-evolution debate where those who claim to be God's people uh, use this idea of the Bible being a mixture of God's word and man's word to dismiss anything that appears to be uh, out of kilter with what modern scientists are saying on that subject of creation. And I suppose they want to do that so that they can avoid having to say openly that they regard God as being mistaken in his interpretation of his creative work at the beginning of time when there were no humans around to offer their interpretation. They don't want to quite say it that way, so they say, oh well, the Bible's a mixture and we agree with everything God says, but there's this other stuff that man adds in that may not always be 100% scientifically accurate. Uh, one of the problems with that, as I say, is that the implication then is that they are, are accusing God of being mistaken when he says in other parts of the scripture that every word that he speaks is pure. And so they're, they're certainly, uh, they have a problem with that. They have a problem when the, when the God himself says that uh, every word of scripture is God-breathed. They have a problem with that if they're dividing up the scripture in this way. And they have another problem, and that is that then man becomes the judge of which words in the Bible are from God and which ones are from man. Which ones are true and which ones are false. By putting it in this way, I hope you can see how much the doctrine of God 
is tied up with the doctrine of Scripture. And why, therefore, the doctrine of Scripture has so much of a bearing on the, on the matter of faith as to whether you have a true and saving faith. Because what you think of Scripture uh, has implications for what you believe about God. What you believe about God and Scripture is very much a matter of faith. There is another aspect, another qualification that I need to make on this statement that everything in the Bible is true, every word. We can say that every word in the Law and Prophets, in other words, in the whole Bible, is to be accepted as God's word. We can and we must say that. But each of those words must be taken in its context rather than out of its context. In its context, God's word accurately and inerrantly records, for example, the devil's words. Genesis 3 verse 4, for example. But the devil's words, the day you eat of the fruit, you surely will not die. Those words are untrue. That is a lie, a lie from the devil. But the scripture truly and inerrantly records what the devil said falsely. Another way of saying that is to say that the whole Bible is true and it is also true when it takes lies and deceptions and exposes them for what they are, which is what happens in Genesis. This is the message then that the Apostle Paul was putting forward before Felix in answer to the charges of Tertullus, the attorney who was representing the Jewish leaders. The accusation was that Paul was a ringleader of a sect that stirs up, and he was a man who stirs up trouble wherever he goes, contrary to the law and the prophets. In other words, contrary to the whole of the Old Testament and contrary to the Jewish laws based on the, the law of God. And Paul says, no, like all true believers, I believe everything in the law and the prophets. And in fact, he was really on trial because he held to that belief uh, in a true fashion. He held it inwardly in a true fashion in a way that many of the Jewish leaders did not, though they claimed allegiance to those same words. The true fashion of believing everything in the Bible, it's not just a matter of outwardly giving some assent to it. It's an inward, it's a heart matter as well. And it includes in that, included in that heart matter, is believing everything in the gospel. I quoted before from Lord's Day 7, question answer 22. What then must a Christian believe? Everything God promises in the gospel. The gospel must be brought into it. Because as the Westminster says in this article, the principal acts, in other words, the main acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ. And that is a matter of the gospel. We look at this in our second point, everything in the gospel. Look at it this way. Uh, small children uh, often learn to jump off a chair or a couch or something of that kind or a table uh, into the waiting arms of their parents. And uh, they, they learn to trust in that, to just throw themselves off and then mum or dad catches them. 
Sometimes they get so enthusiastic about that that they jump off when mum and dad aren't ready for them, aren't even looking. But uh, there's a great deal of trust implied in that. And so we also have to trust, we have to believe that in the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to jump, to accept, receive and rest upon him, to throw ourselves upon him, so to speak, trusting that he will catch us, We have to believe that he is, and we also have to believe in his work, his work of justifying and sanctifying and giving us eternal life, or we won't be able to throw ourselves upon him for justification, for sanctification, and for eternal life if we don't believe who he is, according to the Bible, and what he has done, according to the scripture. And that is very much a matter of the gospel. See how the Apostle Paul uh, says more or less the same thing. By explaining, believing everything in terms of having a hope in God that there, there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Verse 15. The Apostle Paul believes in the gospel. He believes everything in God's word. And included in that as a principal part, he believes in the gospel. And therefore he has that Christian hope. And it's the same hope that is expressed in the law and the prophets in the Old Testament. And it was even the same hope that the leaders, at least the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, but the Pharisees among the Jewish people, they had in a technical, outward or formal way, they also held to this same gospel truth, to the resurrection of the dead and to the coming of the Messiah, to Uh, bring about life for God's people. They had a formal belief in those things, but without a sincere and heartfelt conviction concerning this hope, this hope, this belief in the Messiah, there is no true saving faith. Now, one of the problems with the view that only some of the Bible is from God is that you can then no longer be sure that the heart of the gospel is true either. Uh, For example, many of those who want to deny special creation still claim that they want to accept the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and of believers. And I've met such people as well in reformed circles in different places. Uh, One of the uh, foremost, I knew a man who was one of the foremost proponents in the United States in reformed circles at any rate, of denying the doctrine of creation, but he said he still believed in the resurrection, still believed in the resurrection of Christ and of believers. But how can someone who says that ignorant ancient people wrote parts of the Bible in their ignorance, and in that ignorance they spoke of a literal literal creation, and then turn around and refute and try and refute another one who says that ignorant, superstitious ancient people wrote those parts of the Bible that say that Jesus rose from the dead. And they regard that as a myth too. If you reject one, on what basis are you going to turn around and accept the other? And though it is not quite in the same category, there is nevertheless a parallel between that dilemma and those who say that we only have to believe the gospel in a narrow sense. We only have to believe that Jesus saves Well, we only have to believe the Apostles' Creed and nothing else. 
But then who decides which doctrines are essential and which doctrines are more or less optional or even irrelevant? Who decides that if you give it into the hands of man to be the judge of such things? This is why Lord's Day 7, question answer 22, uh, it explains, it talks about everything in the gospel that a Christian must believe, but he des- it describes that as summarised in the Apostles' Creed, rather than saying that that gospel is the be-all and end-all of doctrine, or that all the important stuff is covered in the Apostles' Creed, and we don't need to worry about everything else. No, the Apostles' Creed is simply a summary of the whole counsel of God. True, we must accept receive and rest upon Christ alone, as this article in the Westminster says. But what do we rest upon him for? We rest upon him for justification, sanctification and eternal life. And you could add much, much more to that than the Westminster does, but the Westminster singles out those things. And those things involve truths that go way beyond that which is expressly stated in the Apostles' Creed. Those are things that in order to understand them, you have to bring in the whole counsel of God, of which that is just a summary, a summary of the gospel. This idea, this, it's, it's a variation on the no creed but Christ mentality. Believing everything in the gospel is sometimes seen as a, in terms of a no creed but Christ attitude. And that attitude, that mentality is a pernicious error that is infecting many reformed churches around the world. And uh, also we have to uh, beware that it doesn't come into our churches. And often one of the first signs of that, of that idea coming in, is when people begin to prefer only the most brief of confessions, like the Apostles' Creed, and they don't want to be bothered with any of the broader confessions that try to do more justice to the whole counsel of God. And so it becomes a kind of excuse for pushing away the whole counsel of God, uh, such that often people who say that Uh, who say that they only want the Apostles' Creed as the the emphasis, uh, often they don't, it's not only that they don't want to study the broader aspects of our confessions, they don't want to study the broader aspects of the whole counsel of God either. And so it becomes an excuse for spiritual laziness. Well, the everything of God's word not only covers the gospel, both in the narrow and the broad sense, all the doctrines that feed into the gospel, uh, which are all tied together by the gospel, not only includes those things, but it also includes sanctification. Chapter 14, Article 2. And when we talk about that everything that we have to believe, including especially the principal part concerning the gospel, which includes also the matter of sanctification, Doctrine of sanctification includes also uh, not only uh, our holy living, our sanctified living, but it also includes the teaching that the Lord Jesus has done all of our sanctification for us, all tied up with Christ's Christ's work and also a part of the gospel. And we look at that in our third and final point, everything with a blameless conscience. 
And we see this in the text where the apostle says in verse 14 that he serves God. Uh, Believing everything leads to serving God. How do you serve God? You serve God by obeying him, by seeking his glory, by striving to be a good witness to him. And let's face it, if you want to be a good witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot do that without pursuing holiness. You cannot do that without leading a sanctified life. He speaks of, the apostle speaks of believing everything in the word in terms of hoping in the Lord Jesus and his work of resurrection, bringing us to be raised again. And then he says, in view of this, I do my best to maintain also a blameless conscience before God and before man. Verse 16. And that is only possible by leading a sanctified life. Blameless, by the way, in this case does not mean being perfect in yourself, in the way that you live. Uh, Sometimes the word blameless in the scripture means not being open to charges in the courts of the church or the land. Um, We find that kind of language in 1 Timothy 3 as a criterion for office, for example, uh, where uh, a man is to be beyond reproach, doesn't mean perfect, it means not open to being charged. And here, similarly, we shouldn't read uh, too much into this, uh, too much into the word blameless, as if it means perfect. Uh, It means that the apostle is saying he's not acting in a way that leads to complete stumbling, either causing others to stumble or himself. We can come at this aspect from another angle. Faith believes everything in the law and the prophets. What do the law and the prophets speak about? They also speak about sanctification. They they contain the gospel. They also speak about sanctification. The law certainly speaks about sanctification. It tells us our need of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, because we're not leading the sanctified life that we should. And then it gives us a rule of gratitude or thankfulness that tells us how the Lord wants us to demonstrate our thankfulness for the gospel, our thankfulness for the work of the Lord Jesus uh, by living the way that pleases him. The prophets, for their part, uh, promise a time when God's people will be made righteous by the work of the suffering servant. That's the gospel. And the prophets also take the people to task when they turn away from God's law. These things are all interconnected, as I've said many times. Law and prophets both teach the gospel, each in their own way, and they both contain law in their own way, in their own special way. A way that in both cases calls for a response, and part of that response involves sanctification. As the Westminster puts it, we are to act differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains. But either way, whichever the passage, whichever the response, there is an action. There is a response, whether of obedience to God's commandments or taking seriously and heeding his warnings or trusting his promises and all of it coming back to resting upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, resting on the gospel. 
Not only can so, not only so, but we can consider also from yet another angle, what is faith? What is the definition of faith? And uh, here I know that we're looking at the Westminster. The Westminster implies these things and elsewhere talks of them as well. Uh, Lord's Day 7, though, uh, sums it up most helpfully in question answer 21, that faith includes knowledge, conviction and assurance. So knowledge, or we could put it another way, believing whatsoever is revealed in God's word, knowledge. Also assurance, based again upon the promises centred on Christ, such as the hope, the certain hope, the assurance of a resurrection because the Lord Jesus is resurrected. But then that third thing that the the, uh, Heidelberg talks about Conviction. And conviction means that we apply all of these things to ourselves in the way of a personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. In some ways, I prefer the word uh, commitment uh, to explain as an explanation of the word conviction. Conviction or commitment. Uh, whichever way you put it, is very much expressed, demonstrated in holy living. Rather than having some abstract theoretical assent, a mere assent to biblical propositions, that was the problem with Paul's opponents. The Pharisees believed those doctrines by way of abstract theoretical assent, but there was no commitment, there was no heart commitment to those things. And if there is a heart commitment, then there are actions that follow from that. Actions by way of striving with God's help for holy living. It is no wonder in light of these things that the Apostle James says that faith without works is dead. But this article isn't talking about dead faith. And uh, the Apostle Paul, when he talked about what he believed wasn't talking about dead belief. He was talking about saving faith. Faith without conviction, faith without commitment is not true saving faith. Just as justification without sanctification in a person's life is an oxymoron. Faith believes everything God says uh, about living in a blameless way. And then seeks to live in that way. Faith believes everything that the Bible says about the gospel and is committed to that, committed to the Lord Jesus, committed to the gospel. Faith believes everything the word says, full stop. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you give to each of us a humble heart? a heart that is willing to submit to your word. And Father, as we submit to the instructions of Scripture more and more, will you cause us to grow in the ability to apply that word to what we think and say and do as a demonstration of a true and heartfelt commitment to the Lord Jesus. Help us to test all things, to test the spirits, to see what is from you and what is not. Father, regulate our lives by your word in such a way that men, as they look at us, will see through at um, what lies behind that, your work, that they will 
see you at work in our lives and be drawn to study the scriptures for themselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalter Hymnal 29, which um, we uh, read from earlier, from the psalm behind it. We'll stand to sing it, and would you please remain standing afterwards for the blessing and doxology. Psalter Hymnal 29, which uh, sings also of the purity of God's word.
said that, that uh, Psalm, Psalm 19, like Psalm 12, has the same teaching as the book of Proverbs does in many places too, on the purity of God's word, on which basis when we hear his blessing to us, we can be absolutely sure that he will keep that because that uh, is just as pure and true as everything else that God says. After that blessing, we sing as uh, doxology number 125, stanza four. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you.